42-47 reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the seeds to all, and as and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and God with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. My name is John Trapp. I'm the RUF campus minister here at Texas. Uh, it's really a delight to have you here. Thanks for, uh, for making it. Uh, give it up for the band. How about that? Man. I just want to go ahead and tell Alex, uh, you're welcome for me teaching you that violin solo. You know, I know you really learned a lot from me on that, so you're welcome, buddy. Um, I don't play the violin. Anyway, okay. I am so glad y'all are here. Um, we're talking through the book of Acts, and um, one of the things that I hope that you see in the book of Acts, one of the things that I hope that you know every time that you come to RUF that we kind of circle back on is that the good news of Jesus, the Bible claims, whether or not you believe it or not, the good news that the Bible claims about Jesus is that he is for people who are sinners. That the God of the Bible is a God who moves towards people who are messy. One of the things that, if you've been at RUF, you've heard me say before, I'll say it again. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. Oftentimes we can think that Christianity is about um, being able to show people how good you are and how you've accomplished certain things, or maybe even being able to show God how good you are and how you've accomplished certain things. But what we believe the Bible is telling us and showing us is that the good news is that while we have a great need for a Savior, we have a great need for a Savior. We also have a great Savior for our need. And so, everyone in this room tonight, I would tell you, whether you've been, this is your first time at RUF, whether you've been to RUF every single week since you've been at UT, we're all beggars tonight. Every last one of us. So, I would welcome you to come with me to the one who says he is the bread of life. So let me pray to him and ask him to help us, and then we'll dive into this passage that Abby read. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We ask you that you would help us even in our thoughts as we process this and think about what it means to be the church. And I ask that you would help us to see um, why you love the church as, as messy as it is. And we pray that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the sermon title you'll see there in your bulletin is The Church, question mark, The Church, really? The Church, John's doing a sermon about the church. The church, okay. Um, now, one caveat before we begin. Caveat. Caveat? Caveat. One of those things before we begin is I want to be clear that RUF is not the church. We're not, we're not claiming to be the church. We're, we're kind of like... One unique thing about this campus ministry is that we are an extension of the church. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister 
the, there's like a thousand different Presbyterian denominations. The particular one that I happen to be ordained in is called the Presbyterian Church in America, um, the PCA, because we like acronyms, P-C-A-R-U-F. Anyway, I, uh, I, one, one of the things that I do, though, is that I'm, I and my staff were sent to the college campus as an extension of local churches to reach college students with the good news of Jesus. Now, you don't have to be a Presbyterian to come to RUF. Like, you probably don't even, most of you are probably, I don't even care what that is. Like, whatever. That's fine. But one of the things, one of the reasons I say that is, um, if you're maybe, maybe you're on the leadership team and you're like, man, I want to serve the local church. Like, you're, you're doing that by serving through RUF because, like, we're an extension of the church to the campus. You're helping the church in that. But maybe, maybe you're coming in and you're like, I don't know about this church stuff. Like, I don't even, like, we're here for you. We're not the church. But really what we want to do is like help you process even thinking about would I ever want to go to church? Is that something I'd ever even want to do? And we're thankful that you would be willing to like step into this room and process that with us. Um, so I want to look at three things tonight. Shocker, three-point sermon. Here we go. First, the need for the church. Second, the practice of the church. And third, the mission of the church. That's what we're going we're to see in this passage. To catch you up on where we are in this story, last week we looked at um, how Jesus, who has ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he sends the Holy Spirit to his people on the day of Pentecost. Penta is, you kind of hear like, Pentagon, like, like think about five, the Greek word for five or 50. So Pentecost is a feast that happened 50 days after Passover. Passover is the feast, if you'll recall, when Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem. So this is, this is not long after Jesus has died on the cross and the rumors begin swirling and his followers begin claiming that they have seen him resurrected, okay? So this is, this is all happening. It's fresh, okay? And what we looked at last week is that when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to his church, the first thing that we see is that what they begin testifying to, what the people who are following Jesus begin testifying to is the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus and welcoming people to them. And it's kind of, remember it was like crazy, like these tongues of fire descend upon the disciples. They start speaking in all of these different languages that they didn't know. And remember, we talked about what is God showing in that. He's showing that God's, God's mission is for all kinds of people. This wasn't just supposed to be for people who spoke Greek or Hebrew. That this mission extended to all of the world. And so they're testifying to the good news of Jesus in all these different languages. And now, I think that it's interesting. We get to the end of that passage in Acts 2. And we get this description of what they all do after the massive conversion happens. Because at the beginning of Pentecost, there's 120 Christians. At the end of Pentecost, later that day, 3,000 people have converted. So that's like a pretty quick growth rate. They, 26 times the amount of people become Christians that one day. So then, like, what do they do? Okay, a couple years ago, I think some of you, if you're a senior, you were at this. We had an RUF cookout. It was like kind of our new thing. We were a brand, it was our first year in ministry here full time. And I was really excited about it. We're gonna like buy all this food and go hang out in some students like house and get people and we're gonna have like cool music on. I'm gonna make burgers and I have like the secret burger recipe that I love and I'm gonna give everyone my burgers and they're gonna be so impressed with me and wanna come be a part of my ministry. It's gonna be incredible and I'm gonna be awesome. So that was my interior, like that was my internal dialogue. Um, 
we get to we get to this girl's house who's hosting us, and I've got all the food, and she's like, so here's my girl, and she takes me out, and it's like this, I'm imagining like the awesome gas grill that I have at my house. It's this small little circular charcoal grill. <laughs> I've never grilled on a charcoal grill before. And she's like, do you have charcoal? And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, get on the phone, call my intern, go get charcoal, go get lighter fluid. I don't know how to do this. Start praying for me now. So she goes and does that, brings it all to, to me, and I'm just like throwing charcoal onto this thing. I'm like emptying multiple bottles of lighter fluid, like throwing it on, like the fire's just going like, to you know, blow, and it goes up, and then like two seconds later, it's like, and it's, I can't get a fire going, I'm panicking, people are starting to show up, I literally go and call Papa John's, I'm like, I need you to deliver 20 pepperoni pizzas here, like now, like tomorrow, or yesterday, and not tomorrow, um, and I'm freaking out, and then in walks my Savior, the other Savior. Jesus is my real Savior, but like this other person who's here. You may have seen him playing his penny whistle up here before. Stuart Lyons. Stuart, give a little wave. Just a little like gentle wave. There, yeah, yeah, okay. So I'm sitting there, I'm freaking out. I'm like, man, I wish that there was someone here who knew how to do charcoal fires. And Stuart walks in and I look at him. I'm like, I, don't, I barely know that guy, but I'm 100% sure that he knows how to do charcoal fires. You know, y'all know Stuart. Okay, so I'm like, Stuart, get over here. <laughs> and he comes over. I'm like, dude, I need you to build charcoal fire. He's like, oh, okay, I, yeah, I know how to do that. No problem, John. And, he, you know, he's just, he's, he starts, like, crafting this wonderful, like, pyramid. And he, like, barely needs any lighter fluid. And he lights it. And it slowly just starts to burn and grow and grow. And the charcoal is, like, hot. And it's not going out immediately. Now, I want you to have that image in your mind for how this, this fire that has descended upon the people of God at Pentecost, how is the fire going to stay lit, as it were? Um, how is it going to stay lit? I think that when we typically imagine like the Spirit of God moving, we imagine a big bonfire, like just pour lighter fluid on it. It's crazy, emotional. Oh, my goodness. This is what the Holy Spirit is like. But what we see the Holy Spirit doing with God's people, as soon as there is a gathering, an assembly of them, is they begin getting together and doing really normal, mundane stuff. It's slow burn, charcoal Christianity that we see here at the end of Acts 2. That's what the Holy Spirit is moving them towards. And they're, like, imagine if you put a charcoal on like one coal by itself and lit it, it would stay lit for a little bit and then go out a couple seconds. But when they're all together, they stay hot for a long period of time. I have discovered, thank you to Stuart. This is what's happening in the church. God's gathering his people so that a movement can begin. But what they need, what the clear conclusion is after they have come to know Jesus is that they need each other. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need the church. And I, I, will, I would be so bold as to say this, and you can test me on this. The, the Bible does not have, there's no such thing in the Bible as an exclusive personal relationship with God. I'll put it that way. Now that might sound like jarring to you because you've been told a lot in your life, like how's your personal relationship with God? Like you've been asked that a lot. And so you've maybe even thought and assessed, like, what is my personal relationship with God? Like, am I doing well in that? But the Bible is, 
Now listen, there are like, there's texts in the Bible that are very personal. Like the Psalms are David writing these like very personal messages to God, right? And he's telling him like, this is, these are my disappointments. This is what I'm ashamed of. This is what I'm frustrated with. And it's a personal dialogue with God. But what were those used for? Do you know? It was the songbook of Israel. It was for the good of the community. And the Bible, in the book of Acts, you'll see, whenever somebody is going on a missionary journey, they're always together. There's never someone who goes off on their own as a lone ranger. We need each other. And whenever somebody gets isolated in the Bible on a missionary journey in the book of Acts, they wait. They wait until someone can join them and go together because we need each other. That's what we see here in this text. We need each other. And what God has given to us in his kindness is he's given us the church. And maybe you're sitting there thinking like, okay, but I don't like the church. Like, the church is filled with sinners. The church is filled with scandal, the crusades, and all this like horrible stuff in history. The church is filled with hypocrites. And you're right. You're right. The church is a mess. But she's God's mess. And he loves her. And the reality is that God, God, when God reconciles us to himself, what he also begins doing is reconciling us to each other. And the way through which he has ordained for that to happen is through his church. Listen to what a third century Early pastor named Cyprian, this man was martyred for his faith, lived in Africa, very influential thinker. He says this, no one, can have the, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. No one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. The church is God's family. It is his adopted children. The church, is, we're his kids. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about like every single person who attends the church. I'm talking about people who are in the church who believe in Jesus and are following him. And maybe you're sitting there thinking like, but I don't, man, but it's messy. Of course it is. It's messy because it has people like me in it and people like you in it. It's messy because it has sinners. The biggest problem with the church, uh, here, let me illustrate with G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He was a guy who um, was a writer, kind of at the turn of the 20th century, he really influenced C.S. Lewis's thinking. Uh, the London Times, like early 1900s, put out this question, like an op-ed, and the question was, what's the biggest problem in the world today? And people began writing in, like all their, you know, Germany, or like, you know, different like ideas of like things that are going on in the world. You know what G.K. Chesterton wrote? Dear, what's the biggest problem in the world today? Dear sirs, I am cordially G.K. Chesterton. I am the biggest problem in the world. It's me. It's my sin. I know myself. I'm the biggest problem in the church. That's why the church is a mess. But God, the good news of the gospel is that God does not give up on messy people. He does not give up on sinners and messy people like me and like you. And he calls us to be part of his messy church that he loves. And so secondly, we see the practice of the church. The practice of the church is learning to become better lovers. That's what the practice of the church is. That's what we're trying to do in the church. And I want you to see how that happens. Look at this passage. What's the first thing that they do in verse 42? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Um, and I've got to say this before... Um, 
Yeah, I just got to say this. It would be really easy to make this a message about what you should do. If you ever come to RUF and you feel like you got should all over, should, what you should do, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. If you ever feel like you come to RUF and you're just getting shitted, you don't have to come back. Like seriously, go find another ministry. Because what everything in the Bible is about, what we want to always be about is about Jesus, right? So the reason that we go to church, it's not just because you should do it. It's because of Jesus. And more specifically, it's because of Jesus' grace for you. So when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, I want you to see how this is talking about Jesus. And we know what the apostles' teaching was because just a, we talked about this last week. A few verses later, we see the first apostle stand up and begin teaching, the, the, the teaching of the church. It's the first sermon. It's Peter's sermon. And what does Peter say? Everything he talks about is about Jesus. He talks about the book of Joel and prophecies and the book of Psalms and how it's all pointing to Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and I'll tell you what, if you know anything about Peter, this guy was like a pretty cowardly, fearful person in the Gospels. Like the disciples don't come off looking great. I hope that you know that. Like Peter denies Jesus. He's afraid of a little servant girl. He's like, aren't you one of the disciples? He starts raining down curses at Jesus. He's afraid. And this, this man, for some reason, now stands up and he's filled with courage. And he says this to the same people that he was afraid of only a couple weeks before. In Acts 2, 23, he says, Peter, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Whoa. That is an about face. Oh, gee, I wonder what, why Peter went from being really cowardly and afraid to now he's willing to stand up and say this. He's seen the resurrection. He's not afraid, and he has the Holy Spirit. And what he is attesting to is that Jesus has died on the cross. And did you, see, did you hear that? He said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's, Peter's saying, listen, this was plan A. God's plan A was this. It's not plan B that Jesus died on the cross. It's his plan A. He's done it because he loves you. Do you remember Jesus' dying words? Some of his dying words on the cross. He says this. He cries out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have you ever thought about how mysterious that is? Because in... The church, we believe that God is one God, three persons. So this is literally God saying to God, please forgive them. They're not repentant. They don't know what they're doing. Like, do you ever think like God's maybe out to get you? And you're worried that he's just like crouching, ready to just grab you and like shame you? Do you hear this conversation? We're let in on a conversation between the Trinity when Jesus is on the cross, and what are they talking about? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the grace of God for sinners like me. I want you to think of the beauty of that. And then I want you to think about how God answers his prayer. The Father hears his Son and answers his prayer. And at Pentecost, when Peter stands up and he says, You killed him. You did it. 50 days ago, he was here and you killed him and he didn't do anything wrong. 
Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, Peter said to, and they said to Peter, I'm sorry, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? How are they cut to the heart? The Holy Spirit. God is at work. God is answering the prayer. The father heard the prayer of the son. And he sends the third person of the Trinity, the spirit, to convict their hearts because the word of God is being preached. This is the love of God. And do you know how Peter responds? Verse 38. He says to them, repent and be baptized. And every one of you in the same in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will be received and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does Peter tell them? Repent. And I want to be clear. Some of y'all have heard me say this, but repentance is not. It's not. Here's the bad thing I'm doing. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to turn to the good thing I'm doing. It's not repentance. Repentance is, here is the way I've been disobeying. uh, disobeying. I'm going to turn to Jesus. Where grace and forgiveness is found. That's repentance. Peter says, yeah, you know the guy that you killed and you're feeling guilty and cut to the heart about that right now? Turn to him. The one you murdered still wants you. That's what the Bible is claiming about Jesus. He says, turn to him and you will receive forgiveness. And not, he says, repent and be baptized. You know what baptism is? It is an entrance into the church. It's a ceremony of admittance and acceptance and being welcomed into Christ's church. So what is, do you see how that's fused with the spine? Repent, come to Jesus, and then what do you do next? Come into his church. We're reconciled to God and to our neighbor. And what happens in this church? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They sit under the good news of the gospel. They hear about God's grace over and over. They listen to it. They gather together. They want to know more about it because they've got to remember it because it's so easy to forget. And we start acting like we've got to earn his love again. But that's not the good news. And so we have to hear it preached to us over and over again because we're like sheep and we wander away. And then they begin considering the implications of the gospel for how they will live their life differently. They begin considering, okay, this father really loves me this much, so now what does it mean to obey him? Teach me about that, apostles. Instruct me on how I should live. And this is key. How should I live in light of God's love, not to get God's love? Do you understand that that's why God gives us commandments. It's not to test you and see if you love him. I mean, that would be a, he'd be a bad father. Imagine, all right, I have five kids. I know, I have five kids. Woo, crazy. Pray for my wife right now. It's bedtime. Um, so imagine if I made, we made up a new rule. Man, what would be a good rule at our house? Oh, gee, I know. Please throw away your trash or flush the toilet after you go. Ooh, they don't do that. Anyway, what if I made those two rules, okay? You guys have got to start doing this more. We're going to be punished. Okay. Now, what kind of dad would I be if I was like, start throwing away your trash and start flushing the toilet more regularly. And if you do that, I'll know you love me. <laughs> what? <laughs> what an insecure father, right? I'm not sure that you're really committed to this relationship, kids, so um, I'm going to need you to see you flush the toilet more regularly, and then I'll know that you're, like, going full send 
on this and we're going to ship it, right? Like, I, I don't, can you ship a, that was weird. That's like more of a dating thing, isn't it? I'm old, y'all. I'm in my mid-30s. Sorry. I, but my point, do you hear my, what I'm saying? The law is not, it's not a test to see, like, are you really committed? It's a given because, because of love, right? And so my kids don't, they're not asked to, like, obey me to prove that they love me. They're asked to obey me because I want them to believe that I love them. And I'm giving them this way to live because it's for their flourishing and their good. Listen to how Tim Keller puts it. Tim Keller, a fellow PCA pastor um, from New York City. He says this, just as a sailboat is not free to sail unless it confines itself in significant ways. You hear that? So like, a, sail, a sailboat can't just like be free. Like what does freedom for a sailboat look like? Just doing whatever it wants? No. Unless it confines itself in significant ways. So you will never know the freedom. So also you will never know the freedom of love unless you limit your choices in significant ways. There's no greater feeling of liberation than to feel and be loved well. The affirmation that comes from love liberates you from fears and self-doubts. That's, that's what the freedom is about. The affirmation of love frees you from fears and self-doubts. It frees you from having to face the world, your goals in life. In all these ways, love is liberating, perhaps the most liberating thing. But the minute you get into a love relationship, and the deeper and the more intimate and the more wonderful it gets, the more you also have to give up your independence, right? If you're in an intimate, deep relationship, like if you go and hook up with somebody else, that's a problem. You don't, you're, you're confining your freedoms for this love. We see then that freedom is not what the culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of freedoms in order to gain others, in order to gain freedoms from things like fear and doubt. Freedom is not the absence of constraints. Instead, it's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. So my question for you is, What's constraining you? Freedoms are you get, what freedoms do you give up? Or another way to put it is, what's your authority? Because I promise you, all of, every one of us in this room have it. We all have something that is shaping us that's our authority. And for many of us, for me often, do you know who my authority is? Me what I want. And if you want to know, like, am I living under the authority of the apostles' teaching? That's like, okay, if this is like what it means to believe that God loves me, to live in light of his love, I'm going to confine myself, constrain myself to the apostles' teaching because I actually believe it gives me freedom. One way to know if you're doing that is, like, is there anything in the apostles' teaching, in the Bible, is there anything in the Bible that you don't like but still obey. That makes you uncomfortable that you still obey. Or do you look at it and go, mm, I'm going to duck out of that one because I really know what's best. You're your own authority. And if you are your own authority, I would ask you, why do you think that's a good idea? 
Have you vetted that? Have you thought about that? Can you take care of yourself? So everything we do, everything we do in obedience as Christians, it's in response to God's call of love. Not in, not in order to attain it, but because we have it by faith in Jesus. So we confine ourselves to practices and rhythms so that we can be better lovers. Lovers of God and lover of neighbor. And I want you to see, do you see the rhythms that they have here? They're meeting for the apostles' teaching and fellowship, for the breaking of bread. They're having the Lord's Supper together. They're eating together and prayers. They're being generous with others. They're doing these, these real, like I said, kind of like normal, mundane Christian practices immediately. That's what the church looks like. But the reason that we do this, the reason that they do this, I'm telling you this is true. You'll start, like, start thinking about this. The rhythms of your life, the habits of your life, or a more churchy way to put it, the liturgies of your life. A liturgy is like if you go to a church service and everyone starts, like people sit down at one time, they all stand up at one time, someone like walks up at the front at a certain time, they all sing at a certain time, they all like start talking at the same time. That's a liturgy, okay? If you grew up in the Catholic church or Episcopal church or Anglican church, you like know what I'm talking about. Um, liturgies, listen to how um, one theologian puts it. He says, liturgies aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. In other words, the habits or the liturgies of our life shape what we love. And I can think of no better example of this, just went to the game on Saturday, than the Texas LSU game. Let me explain what I mean by that. And shout out to Thomas Fitch and James Boswell who helped me think through this. Okay. I want you to imagine, the, like, so last year I took Owen Trapp to um, his first ever UT game. It was my first game too. And we go there and we're kind of like watching it and like all of this stuff starts happening and like you people just know what to do. Like when, like, like when, um, when everyone runs out onto the field, everyone knows to stand up. Like when the players run out. It's just, it's like an unspoken, it's a liturgy, it's a habit. Everyone stands up. When the national anthem happens, what, is, what does everyone do? It's a time of quiet, reverence. No one tells you to do that. It's a habit. And then like, when the team processes onto the field, just like a processional would happen like at a church, everyone stands and they cheer. And there's more rhythms to this. There's the Texas, Texas, fight, cheer. That, there's that whole thing. Like The first time I heard Texas and like everyone around me was like, fight, I was like, whoa, hey, okay. There's a liturgy, there's a habit. But then there's like even like the weirder ones, like the don't stop believing phone thing, the lie, like that's a liturgy that happened. That's apparently that started happening like a couple years ago. Now everyone does it when that song comes on. They get out their phone and put on their light and drain their battery. And then there's like, there's the get your horns up video before the fourth quarter. There's this, there's this singing of the eyes of Texas at the end of the game. There's even the pluckers coupons after the win, right? All of these are habits and rituals, and you know what they're doing? They're making you love it more. And I want you to think with me. So Owen Trapp goes, the first, first game last year, he's completely lost the whole time. He's like not moved by it because he's confused. But what if he goes every year with his dad to a game? And then he, he really wants to come to Texas. He wants me to do RUF and be his campus minister. Isn't that like the cutest thing ever? I know. <laughs> okay, buddy. <laughs> I was like, I hope that you think that when you're 18. Um, he won't. But I was like, 
Okay, think about this. Let's say he comes to Texas, he goes to every home game, and those liturgies and habits are happening game after game after game. And seniors, this is going to happen to you, you, you big, tough senior boys. This last, the last home game against whoever it is, I don't know, but like the last home game, when the, when the game is over and everyone stands up and they're singing, the eyes of Texas are upon you, you might get a little moisture in your eye. Like it might stir something in you. Why? Because your habits have been shaping your loved. Your habits, the rituals that you're a part of has been shaping your love. Do you want to like, do you want to love God? It's not a pour the, the lighter fluid on it and light a match and like, right? That's not it. It's slow, mundane habits. And it's not ones that we do to get God to love us. It's ones that we do so that we can be formed into lovers. That's the practice of the church. And I'll end quickly on this last point, the mission of the church. What we see, what this church is doing, their purpose is, their mission is to go and to give themselves away for the good of others. And that is, so, that is so contra to how we usually view church. Because a lot of times we can go to church and we can decide if we're going to go back to church, whether or not we're going to go back. The question that we ask ourselves as we're walking out the door is, what did I get out of that? Was that good? Did I like that? That's viewing church through the lens of self. And the whole point of the early church, what we see them doing, is they're going to church and they're not asking, what can I get out of it? They're asking, what can I give? Do you see how they're like crazy generous with their money? And I just want to say, like, the tr- they don't become communists. I know you said, like, you read that, like, they're like selling all their possessions, they're selling their possessions, they're giving to those people who have need. But to be clear, it says they, in verse 45, they give to people as any had need. So it's not like we're going to put it all in one pot and divide it up evenly. It's like, no, no, no. But if there's someone in our midst, If there's someone in our church and they need something, you know what, man, we're going to take care of them. Because we come here and we ask, how can I give myself away? How can I love? And do you know what? Jesus actually tells us that one of the ways that people will begin to even believe that this is true is if they see the church loving the church. I know that sounds weird. But like, he says in John 14, by this people will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. And I'll end with this story. A buddy of mine uh, who's a pastor told me of his friend who was serving a church in uh, Seattle. And uh, this church, they had, uh, they had their own building. And so in their building, they had what's called a sexton, which is you know, someone who's just kind of there to, uh, who's employed by the church to kind of take care of the church grounds, keep things clean, keep things locked up, where they need to be locked up, all that stuff. The sexton that this church had employed was a man who had become a Christian while he was in prison through uh, a prison ministry. And um, the man was covered in tattoos. And, uh, and a lot of them were white supremacist tattoos that he was now incredibly ashamed of. And so whenever he was working, no matter how hot it was in the church, he always had, his, he always had long sleeves on, hot button buttons. He didn't want people to see all the stuff that was all over him. And... Someone from the church got the idea of like, man, what, what is this? Let's, 
he wants those removed, but it's expensive. He can't afford it. But let's pool our money together and help this brother out. And they did. But not only did they do that, not only did they pool their money together, but I don't know if any of you have ever had a tattoo removed. I've had like 20 removed, but no, I'm just kidding. But like, a tattoo removal is like really painful. And so what the church did is they began driving him to his appointments week after week. And these are like sweet old ladies walking in with an ex-tatted, like an ex-con tatted up, tough-looking guy, sitting in the waiting room with him, praying with him, sitting with him while he's hurt, helping him in the whole process. And after about a month, the guy who was doing the procedures, he was like, hey, look, I don't know what all this is, but like, I'm not going to take your money anymore. I'm removing these tattoos on the house because y'all are amazing. When Jesus says, people will know, people will know me by watching you love each other. That's what the church is. It's a place where we get to go, we learn to love as God has loved us. Not in order to get it, but because we already have it. If your faith is in Jesus, I want you to know that. And if you're considering coming to him, I would welcome you come to a place and learn to love and learn to be loved by God because he loves messy people like me and like you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word that is precious and that it gives us life. Um, I pray for uh, students here. I pray particularly tonight for people who may feel wounded by the church, uh, who have been burned by the church. Um, Lord, I pray that you would meet them in that. I pray that they would see that when you walked on this earth, Lord Jesus, the people that you most had a problem with were hypocrites uh, in the church, uh, were people who hurt others in the church. And I pray that they might see that your anger burns against that as well, and that they might see that you welcome people who are needy like us. Thank you for that truth, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.